0: This is Ben Weingarten of the, his books, and today I'm joined by investigative reporter and New York Times bestselling author Ken Timmerman to discuss his new book, Dark Forces, The Truth About What Happened in Benghazi. Ken, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. So in this book, you know, you've weaved together material that you state, that you plan on turning over to the FBI. Uh, Give readers a taste as to what they're going to come away with about Benghazi and U.S. policy in the Middle East more broadly that they might not have known before. Well, first of all, on the Benghazi
1: attacks themselves, uh, what you're going to find is that uh, the story that you've been told so far, the the narrative that has been told in the national media, uh, really just barely scratches the surface and in some cases is an outright lie. Uh, Instead of uh, a protest uh, provoked by a YouTube video, uh, the attacks in Benghazi were coordinated, well-orchestrated, well-planned, military-style attacks directed by the Islamic Republic of Iran through their overseas terrorist arm known as the Quds Force. Uh, This is part of the Revolutionary Guards Corps. Uh, And I talk about the Wizard of Oz of Iranian terror, a guy named Qasem Soleimani, who is very well known to U.S. uh, officials, both military, intelligence, and diplomatic, uh, because of his involvement in Iraq killing Americans, because of his involvement in Afghanistan killing Americans, and because of his involvement with jihadi groups and Hezbollah around the world. So that's really the the first really big takeaway from the book.
0: Uh, This was a state-sponsored terrorist attack, and I name the people who were involved in it. And to that end, You know, when most people, when the average person hears about Iran and their nuclear program, um, they don't necessarily see the connections between Iran and Hezbollah, for example, and all of their other operations throughout the world. Give the readers a sense as to the size and scope of Iran's terror-sponsoring efforts.
1: Well, first let me just give you an idea of the money involved. Uh, The Iranians today virtually own whole segments of Iraq and the Iraqi government uh, for the past 10 years they have very carefully infiltrated every single government ministry they typically um, put either an Iranian national or somebody who is working for the Iranians in the number two or number three slot in every government ministry uh, specifically those uh, that, that are responsible for administrative tasks why is this important? it gives them a, a complete purview and control over personnel and people or policy, as I think most Americans should understand. Now, in the Ministry of Finance in Iraq, uh, they have a special arrangement with two banks where they get a uh, uh, they get a float of about 15 million dollars a week for each of those banks on the foreign cha- foreign exchange transactions. You start, you add that up. That's 30 million dollars a week for these two banks. 120 million dollars uh, a month. That is really big money. It's all off-the-books money, and it's money that the Iranians are using to support their terrorist operations around the world. It's over a billion and a half dollars of black money that they can use, completely separate from the Iranian state budget. So they are a world-class, very well-funded, and ruthless intelligence service Such as the United States has not encountered since the KGB. Now, meanwhile,
0: you talk about the back channel negotiations that Valerie Jarrett had with a high ranking Iranian official. Talk a little bit about those back channel negotiations.
1: Well, uh, Valerie Jarrett uh, grew up in Shiraz, Iran. She was actually born there. Her father uh, was an African American doctor from Chicago. Uh, He operated the first, he was the, you know, opened up this new hospital in Shiraz in the. Uh, late 1950s. And he became friends with a um, a family nearby uh, named uh, uh, Velayati. And uh, Dr. Velayati uh, uh, was well known in that period. His son, Ali Akbar, became a pediatrician uh, and, of course, went on to become foreign minister in the Islamic Republic and today is the foreign affairs advisor to the supreme leader. So uh, this guy, Ali Akbar Valiati, is an old family friend, if you wish, of Valerie Jarrett's from her childhood. And uh, she has had, uh, by some accounts I've seen, as many as 20 meetings with him uh, in various places in the world, usually places like Dubai, a little bit out of the way, but sometimes in Europe as well. And um, uh, certainly any talk that they had about Libya uh, failed because uh, it did not get the Iranians to back off in what they were doing. Uh, but I believe that uh, she has been trying uh, you know, through this back channel to at least make the Iranian regime believe that the U.S. government seeks an agreement with them and will not be a hostile force. That's probably the most important thing that she's conveyed to them, and it's been the most disastrous as well, because the Iranians take that
0: as a sign of weakness. So while the U.S. is negotiating with Iran – you talk about the Quds force of Iran having their fingerprints all over what occurred in Benghazi. You also talk about uh, potential ties uh, with Egypt through the Muslim Brotherhood in a sort of grand plot to garner the release of the blind Sheikh. Sort of walk us through Iran- the evidence of Iran's fingerprints on the Benghazi operation, how Egypt might have been involved, and how they sort of worked together.
1: Well, the Iranian connection, I think, is the most solid of all uh, because it it comes to me from multiple sources. Uh, People on the ground in Benghazi, defense contractors who I have known for for quite some time, uh, who were there at the very early uh, days of the insurrection in February and March of 2011, were sending me emails and and other communications about the Iranian and Hezbollah presence in Benghazi, Hezbollah meaning the Lebanese uh, Hezbollah. Uh, And uh, they were worried about this early on. Uh, The CIA was tracking them very uh, nervously early on. Uh, They were helping some militia groups, hindering other militia groups, and watching and recruiting uh, as time went on. Uh, When it came time for the attacks against the the U.S. Special Mission Compound and the CIA annex in September of 2012, uh, the Iranians geared up their operations. Uh, They brought in a two-star general, who I name in the book, uh, to oversee the operation. They had a man on the ground uh, named Judaki, who is very well known to the U.S. intelligence community. He cut his teeth by by killing Kurds in Iran's northwest provinces in the 1980s. He was there as kind of the master of operations, the chief of operations. And they had a Lebanese Hezbollah uh, operative who was the liaison with the Ansar, Sharia, and other pickup teams that they recruited uh, on the ground. Uh, as far as the Muslim Brotherhood is concerned, I think there is, you know, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt uh, was was uh, very closely tied to some of the jihadi groups in uh, Benghazi and elsewhere in Libya. Uh, they certainly uh, wanted to provide all the assistance they could in the fight against Gaddafi. And we know, uh, and I tell this story in the book, that uh, two two days before the attacks, uh, they were uh, planning and 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 talking about their plans on Facebook and other social media of launching a violent assault on the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, not in Libya, but in Cairo. They had demonstrations in front of the U.S. uh, Embassy in Cairo led by the son of the blind sheikh and by the brother of Zawahe, who was the leader of al-Qaeda. Uh, and they, they, their threats against the embassy were so violent, they said they were going to storm the embassy, burn it down, and 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 take the diplomats hostage in Egypt. They were so violent that the U.S. ambassador actually ordered uh, embassy personnel to stay home on September 11, 2012. But none of that, none of that was directed against uh, the U.S. mission compound in Benghazi or even the U.S. embassy in Tripoli.
0: Yeah, so working our way back then to... Pre-attack. One of the things that you talk about is, and this is one of the sort of parallel stories within the book, is Ambassador Chris Stevens's past and his sort of romanticizing of the Islamic rebels, quote-unquote, in Libya. Speak a little bit about uh, Stevens's worldview and how he ended up befriending some of the very same people that were likely involved with the attacks on the mission.
1: Well, I think one thing clear about Chris Stevens is that uh, he, did, he did not like uh, the image of the Bush administration putting the U.S. military first. Uh, he be- was a believer in soft power. I got to know him initially uh, in the late 1990s when he was the Iran desk o- officer at the State Department, and I was running a small NGO. And this was at the time that, uh, of the student uprising in Iran in 1999. And-, and he was he was sincerely interested in helping in any way that he could uh, some of these students who were jailed and some who were trying to get out of Iran. Uh, in his first stint as a uh, diplomat in Libya in 2007-2008, he actually gave up his Christmas day to go to a Libyan jail to spend time with a former Gitmo detainee, a guy named bin Benkumo. His Christmas day,
0: you
1: know, uh, with a terrorist who hated Americans and who most likely repaid Chris Stevens by getting involved in the plot to murder him later in September of 2012. So he was somebody who f- for a long time really had this kind of almost Sufi mystical view of Islam uh, that uh, tried to downplay the violent side of the jihadis uh, believing that they might be able to be tamed. This was a view that was shared by the State Department and by Hillary Clinton and certainly by Barack Obama that you could tame the jihadis, that you could appeal to their, their, their non-violent side. And in fact, as we've learned, uh, over and over again. The only difference between the violent jihadis and the uh, nonviolent Muslim Brotherhood types is timing and tactics. They both want to, in, uh, to uh, impose Sharia law. They both want to impose the caliphate. It's just how many people will they murder to get there
0: and how fast will they do it. So in other words, it's kind of analogous to progressives being, as, as Glenn Beck once called it, slow communists.
1: I think, yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. It's, it's even better than calling them fellow travelers because they're not fellow travelers. They are fully engaged. It really is just a difference of, of, of
0: timing and tactics. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not surprising based on what you just discussed, but how did we get to a point where a group called the February 17th Marchers Brigade was protecting that mission, the U.S. mission in the first place, and what is that group?
1: That is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? The February 17th, of course, refer to the day of the uprising, uh, the day of rage against Gaddafi. That's when it began, February 17th, in Benghazi uh, in 2011. Uh, the February 17th Martyrs Brigade grew out of some of these brigades in the uh, Libyan uprising against Gaddafi. Uh, Abu Katala was involved uh, in it in a peripheral way. He had chaired a sub-brigade at one point. He was put in charge of... Of uh, security in Benghazi itself. Uh, Bin Kuma was involved uh, also at their height they probably had several thousand um, members and uh, they you know were were, uh, pretty clearly anti-American and yet they get this contract to be the quick reaction force uh, in case something goes wrong in Benghazi. Uh, We know now pretty clearly that uh, what they did on that night the the actual martyrs brigade itself as opposed to Ansar al-Sharia the 17th uh, February Martyrs Brigade impeded the arrival of rescue forces from the annex, held them up for about 25 minutes, all the while the villa in which Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith were hiding was burning. And if they had not blocked that uh, rescue force uh, that Ty Woods uh, was leading, uh, former Navy SEAL Ty Woods uh, from the annex, uh, they might have been able to rescue the ambassador and Sean Smith before they were killed.
0: Talk about what Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were doing on the night of September 11, 2012.
1: That, that's a great question. I can tell you what I know, and then and especially let me tell you what we don't know yet. All right? uh, we, we know that uh, the president met in the Oval Office at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. This is 11 o'clock Benghazi time, at the peak of the attacks. Okay, the attacks began at 9.45. They were still raging until about 11.30. People don't realize this. It was almost, almost two hours of unending attack and, and, and gunfire and, and uh, you know, the assault of the jihadis and, and the attempt by the CIA people, the GRS people coming from the annex to defend and to extract the ambassador. Uh, so the president meets at 5 o'clock with Panetta and with Dempsey, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They brief him on what's happening in Benghazi. They say it's an attack, it's a violent attack, it's a terrorist attack. And the President says basically, hey guys, go ahead and deal with it please. Um, I've got other stuff that I'm involved with. If you need anything, you can call my Chief of Staff, but uh, please don't call me back. And we know the next day that he had a fundraiser in Las Vegas, and I can only assume that he was there in the White House and dialing for dollars that night in preparation for the fundraiser. We know that he had a, a, a brief telephone exchange with Hillary Clinton at about 10 o'clock at night. 10 o'clock at night, 4 a.m. in Benghazi. Uh, the, Glenn Darty and Ty Woods were still alive. The mortars that killed them had not even begun to fire yet. And at that 10 o'clock uh, telephone exchange with Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, I, I believe... She briefed uh, the president on what she was planning to release from the State Department because just eight minutes later at 10.08, Hillary Clinton released a statement that blamed the attacks on a YouTube video that nobody had seen. Uh, Hillary Clinton, we know, was engaged that night. She, she has said uh, in her testimony that she called the president of Libya. Uh, she was on the phone with Greg Hicks, the DCM in, in Tripoli, the deputy chief of mission, the number two. Uh, she was on, 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 um, on the phone with various people in the State Department, and everybody told her from the record we have so far of documents that have been turned over by the State Department to various congressional committees. Every single person in the State Department told her, reported up to her, that it was a terrorist attack. Nobody mentioned a YouTube video. Nobody said it was a protest gone wrong. And nevertheless, she invents this story. So that's what we don't know. We don't know the actual origins of the story of the youtube
0: video yeah and, and to your knowledge and i've seen some conspiracy theory ask um, writings about this uh, how did the state department or whoever it was that wrote up the the press release that ultimately was put up find out about that youtube video in the first place
1: well I, i'm i am guessing that they uh, read the Twitter account from the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, because here's the ultimate irony on this. Uh, th- that that video had been posted to the Internet, I believe, in July of 2012. Nobody paid any attention to it. Nobody watched it. Uh, it was seen as, you know, the work of a crank. And, um, uh, you know, n- nobody had seen it in the, the Muslim world. And then all of a sudden on September the 7th, okay, just a couple days before the attacks, the U.S. Embassy in Cairo uses its official Twitter account to apologize to Muslims for a video they hadn't seen. And this begins to catch the attention of some people in Cairo, including a a well-known TV personality and including a very senior cleric, who then begin to ask questions. They look at the video, and then they start to stir people up in Cairo. So as far as we know from the public record, Actually, the first mentions of the video come from the State Department itself, not
0: even from Muslim authorities. You go into, in great detail, um, basically, to put it colloquially, the the gun running that's occurred in the Middle East, where effectively, as you lay it out, the U.S. has worked through proxies to get weapons to groups uh, that the government deems favorable in terms of bringing down authoritarian regimes in the Middle East. Um, untangle the web of gun running that's occurred and answer the question for our readers, to your knowledge, have American soldiers been killed by our own weapons?
1: Um, Well, uh, let me answer the the, the last part of it first. Um, There is a great deal of um, supposition led by some of the facts in the after-action report done by Brigadier General Colt of the extortion 17 downing in Afghanistan. This was a Chinook helicopter carrying over 30 members of U.S. Special Forces, the majority of whom came from SEAL Team 6. Uh, And they were brought down uh, in July of of 2011 in a very mysterious uh, manner. Um, uh, It it, it may have been with a heat-seeking missile, and if so, that heat-seeking missile may have gotten to the hands of the Taliban through one of these CIA operations that I described uh, in dark forces. So that is something that I think still needs to be investigated. I know that um, Darrell Issa, the chairman of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, uh, has agreed uh, with the families that he will investigate, because I was in the room when he made them that pledge that he would investigate. Uh, So I think we're going to hear more about that publicly. Uh, There was another uh, operation uh, that took place, a downing of a U.S. helicopter in July of 2012 in Afghanistan. This time, luckily, no Americans were killed. The missile did not explode. It lodged inside the uh, engine compartment of the Chinook helicopter, and the pilot made a hard landing. They discovered a fragment from that missile that included a serial number, and it tracked back to a lot of stingers, that had been signed out to the CIA for use with Qatar and other countries in the Middle East. Uh, so there was a clear example of blowback uh, and I talk about that in, some, in great de- detail in Dark Forces about how these missiles were transferred to the Qataris. The Qataris uh, brought them in through Chad which is south of Libya uh, in a convoy of trucks in late March early April of 2011 and essentially got caught uh, by the French and that's why we know a little bit about uh, this arm smuggling is because there is cable traffic and those telephone intercepts that were later uh, found in the uh... ruins of qaddafi's intelligence chief office in tripoli
0: and in, in your research for this book uh, what was the most startling of all the discoveries you made regarding benghazi uh...
1: i think actually the one that shocked me the most uh... it was not even the iranian involvement uh... it, it, it because I have run into it before with uh, the 9-11 attacks uh, and I've seen them all over the world in a way uh, I was almost expecting that What really surprised me the most was to to see the involvement of John Brennan uh, the counterterrorism advisor to the President of the United States get actively involved in shutting down a CIA investigation by the director of the CIA into arms smuggling out of Libya to the Syrian rebels, and I talk about this at great lengths in the book. There were uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, about 800 of them, which were sent down from Libya to Niger, a country in Africa just to the south of Libya, where they were upgraded with CIA-manufactured batteries, special batteries uh, made by the CIA to upgrade older uh, Soviet-era missiles such as the SA-7s. And these missiles and grip stocks from the Egyptian army uh, were then put on these missiles. You can tell them by the color. Uh, It's very easy to identify them in photographs. They turned up uh, in the Sinai. They've turned up in Gaza. They've turned up in Syria. Uh, The Syrian rebels claimed that they were shooting down uh, Syrian government helicopters with them. And why would the uh, counterterrorism advisor of the President of the United States shut down an operation uh, that was aimed at stopping? This weapons trafficking—that was the
0: thing that astonished me the most. How can Americans have any confidence in the civilian leadership of national security and intelligence when, like you say, a high-ranking official like John Brennan, who is showing clearly a misunderstanding of jihad, calling it, you know, a legitimate peaceful struggle, uh, is making decisions that have such such strong implications in the Middle East and ultimately back home. Well, you're right, and I think you've you've kind of answered your own question. Uh, I, I
1: uh, I called it, just to kind of finish up on that last story, I called it John Brennan's iron claw. He came down on Director Petraeus with an iron claw to prevent him from investigating what appears to have been John Brennan's own arms trafficking. Uh, look, when, when when the president's top advisor for counterterrorism engages in operational activity overseas, because that's what this appears to be, uh, that is a violation of the National Security Act of 1947. Uh, that's exactly what they tried to uh, convict Oliver North of doing during the Iran-Contra affair. The biggest difference, of course, between Iran-Contra uh, and Benghazi is that nobody died during the Iran-Contra affair, and here there are four American uh, bodies uh, for Americans, for brave Americans who perished because of the the misguided policies and actions of American officials such as John Brennan and
0: also Hillary Clinton. You've been very generous with your time, so I just want to ask two more very quick questions that are topical today. Uh, the first is, given the goings on in Israel, what are the chances that any of the rockets being launched? from Gaza at Israel could actually be rockets that were initially in the hands of the United States? Um, it's a good question, and, and uh, um, I know, for example, that
1: some of the surface-to-air missiles made their way into um, into Gaza. I don't think the Stingers did, but I think some of the Soviet-era missiles from Gaddafi's arsenals did. The Israelis at one point had to shut down uh, the airport a lot uh, because of a threat from Sinai, from, from Al-Qaeda Group. Groups in Sinai. Uh, I don't think that they got surface, uh, you know, ground to ground missiles uh, from the U.S., but there is a possibility of surface to air missiles.
0: Okay. And the second question is uh, with respect to Iraq, uh, based upon all of your research, um, what are the implications of uh, prior U.S. policy in the Middle East and what you see unfolding there with ISIS?
1: Well, it was so predictable. And to hear Hillary Clinton say nobody could ever have foreseen this, you know, makes me want to, to laugh or or cry, more likely. Uh, it was so foreseeable. Everybody could see it coming. I, I have spent a lot of time in the past five years going back and forth to northern, northern Iraq, helping persecuted Christians there, reporting on what they're doing. I wrote a book on that as well. And uh, everyone could see... Uh, the jihadi groups in Mosul, on the outskirts of Mosul, trying to drive Christians out, bombing churches, and preparing, preparing the way for what we've seen happen. Uh, Look, um, when we uh, helped South Korea uh, against North Korea in the 1950s, uh, we we not only defeated the the North, drove them back, established an armistice line. We kept 25,000 troops, and we have them still there today. Uh, in Germany, we kept 200,000 troops there up until about a decade ago, and this was 50 years after World War II. The idea that we could pull out of Iraq 10 years after the war every single combat troop and hope and hope that it would remain peaceful is just completely foolish and misguided and a misuse of American power and, and frankly, an insult to the families of those uh, soldiers and airmen Navy, Navy personnel who gave their lives to help free Iraq from
0: tyranny. The name of the book is Dark Forces, The Truth About What Happened in Benghazi. And the author is Ken Timmerman. Ken, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.